0: Welcome to C4 Church Online, equipping you as you follow Jesus. Well, we're so glad that you're joining us here this morning. Want to say hello to everyone in Bowmanville and Port Perry and anyone watching in and around the world. Thanks so much for joining us. We're starting now into our Christmas season and if you know anything about myself, and many of you do, you know that I'm a lover of history. I'm fascinated not only by world history, I'm fascinated by my own family's history. More than once, I have gone to Ancestry.ca after I was allured by those ads to see if I could find my family and just like the ads promised I did, little green leaves came up and as I did, I began to find my family uh, generations. I was so excited the first time I did this. I found the boat manifest where my grandfather's name was, and there was my great-grandfather and great-grandmother's signatures coming from England to Halifax on the Queen Mary. In times like ours these days when everything feels like everything is changing and very little is stable, instinctually we all want roots and history and stability and context for ourselves and our families and our lives. That's why so many people are checking out genealogies these days to find rootedness in a time of deep change. That's also why in the last five years so many stories about family history have been placed on television, Ancestors in the Attic, Finding Your Roots with... Henry Louis Gates Jr., Genealogy Roadshow, The Generations uh, Project, Long Lost Family, The Relative Race, and Who Do You Think You Are? Now, everyone is hoping when they go on one of these sites or do their own research or watches one of these shows, they're hoping that they find some hero. Isn't that what we all want to find in our family tree? Some profound, famous person or even better. This is all of our dreams that we don't want to admit. You go on Ancestry.com or .ca and you suddenly find out that you are the long, lost person, a whole country you've never heard about has been looking for. And suddenly there's a knock at their door and like, oh my goodness, thank you so much for logging online. You're the lost queen or king and we couldn't find any relatives. And now you're here and you didn't even know we exist, but we do. And here's a billion dollars just for you. And you have a castle now in the middle of Scotland and Jeeves is now your butler and life is amazing. I mean, this is what we all are hoping for. We all want someone of note. Now within the, my side of the family tree, there's at least one person of a profound sort of note. From my mother's side, we are direct descendants from the composer Bach. So that's not bad. And he was a Christian, and so I look forward to hanging out with him in the new heavens and the new earth and talking about our family and comparing notes. But I think all of us also are a little afraid to look at our family histories because we're afraid that we're not gonna discover some profound person, we're gonna discover some monster. Everyone wants to be related to a famous person, but you're like, oh, congratulations, the mass murderer is in your family tree. Now, isn't that excellent? Now, watching those shows, if you've done that or doing your own history, most of us that have done it will find a few things. Number one, we'll find a lot of normal history. We'll find what we experienced today back then. We'll also find some boring stuff. We'll find a lot of pain because that has been found in every generation. And then, of course, also, we're going to find some success Successes. But knowing where we've all come from does give us insight to who we are and how we live. Our family trees are full, of course, of colorful characters, beautiful, broken, boring, but that makes us us. But when we come to the Christmas story, as we enter in now, the very first recounting of Jesus' coming is found in the book of Matthew. And as we enter into the story, we're con- we're quickly confronted by this very long, 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 long genealogy in Matthew 1. If you've got a Bible, by the way, you can turn there, virtually or physically right now. Now at this moment, when people usually are preaching through Matthew at Christmas, they skip the genealogy. It's 16 verses, there's at least 41 names, and who wants to try to publicly pronounce them all right? Not me. And if you're reading it, of course, in your own devotional life, you're like, this is boring, I can't relate to this, this is more than 140 characters, so it can't be relevant to my life. No, no, no. There's a reason why it's here. There's a reason why it's been placed here. And this genealogy, this boring part of the Bible, actually brings the whole Christmas story to life. And doesn't just bring the Christmas story to life. It gives us hope. It confronts our fears. It reorients our histories. And it can give every single one of us, Christian, seeker, skeptic, or anyone in between, between help. Now, Matthew is the author of this gospel. And he's writing this gospel primarily to convince his fellow Jews, that Jesus is who he claimed to be. The king of the Jews, the Messiah, the fulfillment of the Jewish faith. And that is why he starts with this huge genealogy, because in the Jewish world 2,000 years ago, genealogies were used for legal rights, inheritance, and also to prove legitimacy. Now, before we get to the list that we all tend to skip, let's not forget the story of Matthew himself. His story will help us understand why he chose to point out, to emphasize certain people over other people in Jesus' family tree. Here's how Mark actually records the story of Matthew. As Jesus was walking along, Mark 2:14, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at a tax collector's booth. And Jesus said to Matthew, or Levi, follow me. So Levi got up and followed him. Levi and Matthew were interchanged. Now, Levi's a tax collector. And Jesus walks up to this tax collector and says, I want you to be one of my followers and not just one of my disciples. I actually want you to be one of my leaders. Now, I've shared this before, but maybe you don't know this. Let me say it again. Jewish tax collectors were middlemen between the Jewish population and the Roman occupational government. They were collaborators. Tax collectors, in our day of a bad rap, no one wants to give their money away. But this is much darker back then. They were hated by the Jewish community and honestly viewed like they had made a deal with the devil. They had sold their souls. They were working for an occupational military force. They were known, historians talk about this all, all the time, they were known for mass exploitation, lying, cheating, and overtaxing, and no one stopped them. A Jew deciding to enter into the customs service was regarded as an outcast from society, like a cripple. They were immediately disqualified to be a witness in any court case because they were viewed as untrustworthy. Immediately, if you became tax Tax collector 2,000 years ago as a Jew, you were excommunicated from the synagogue. In other words, you were cut off from church and God's people, and you were immediately thrown out or viewed as a disgrace through your family, immediate and extended. So if you decided to become a tax collector, you lost your faith, your background, your ethnicity, your family. You love money more than anything. And that's who Matthew was. Now, Mark 2.15, now Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house and many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples. There were many who followed him. Can you imagine Matthew's joy? This most famous pastor, leader, healer, spiritually, he's sitting in my house eating with me and he doesn't believe he's getting contaminated by my stuff by eating with me. Ah, verse 16. But when the teachers of the law, the Pharisees, the pastors of the day, saw him eating with sinners and tax collectors, they asked the disciples, why does he keep eating with those people? and on hearing this Jesus said to them it's not the healthy who need a doctor it's the sick I've not come to call righteous people I've called to come sinner called to come uh, to call. I've come to call sinners so Levi his name later is Matthew and Matthew the tax collector Matthew the collaborator Matthew the one who loved more money more than his family ends up not just following Jesus but actually being changed by Jesus and actually begins to lead with Jesus and now he is trying to convince the community he ripped off and the community he betrayed that there's a second chance and Jesus is the second chance and actually you can have him too. Now with all that background, now you come to the genealogy and you will begin to understand Christmas from a whole new light. So let's read it together. Matthew 1.1. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, we see the word genealogy. We go, yeah, yeah, it's a family tree. Actually, no, there's more going on here. In the original language, the word for genealogy is the word Genesis, origin. So immediately Matthew includes this because he wants to take his Jewish audience right back to the very first verse in the Bible. In the beginning, in the Genesis, God created the heaven and the earth. And here's what Matthew is stitching together. The God of creation, because there is only one God, who is the Jewish God, is doing a new thing, a grander thing, a greater beginning. And at this moment, the Jewish mind would already begin to go, what's taking place here? Something seems to be coming clear." Now, he says that the Genesis starts with Jesus. Now, we sing to Jesus. We use the name Jesus. Our culture cusses with the name Jesus all the time. But we actually miss what the name Jesus means. Jesus is a Greek variation of the Old Testament Hebrew name Joshua. And Joshua means God saves or God is salvation. Of course that's going to be the Messiah's name. Through Jesus, God saves. God the Father is going to offer salvation to the whole world. God saves. But here's what we also miss sitting here today. 2,000 years ago, Jesus was one of the most common boy names in Jewish culture. If you were sitting in class and you say, Jesus, raise your hand, 40% of the boy's hands would have gone up. So you go, okay, well, who, what makes this Jesus different than all the other Jesuses? And Matthew goes, oh, let me tell you, Jesus is different because he's the Messiah. Now, Messiah, the name we use is Christ. It's not a last name. Christ means anointed one, long-awaited one, the one that the whole Jewish faith had actually been praying for. If you go to the Wailing Wall today, right now in Israel, Orthodox Jews are still praying for the Messiah to return. And we're like, no, no, he's already come. You've missed him. Look at Jesus. Jesus is the promised deliverer. He's the fulfillment of the whole Jewish faith. From Genesis to Malachi, the whole of the Jewish faith, which is God-given, the laws, the rituals, the temple, all find their fulfillment and meaning in Jesus' from Nazareth. Well, Matthew keeps going. And if you actually just read M- Matthew 1.1, if you went to Toronto today and hung out with a Jewish friend of yours who is Orthodox or conservative and read Matthew 1.1 to them, you would see shock, surprise, excitement, or offense, just like happened 2,000 years ago. Because Matthew says that Jesus is the Messiah and then says that Jesus is the son of David. Now, King David was the greatest king. The conquering king, the man after God's own heart, the one who wrote most of the psalms. And Jesus doesn't just come from his line. More is going on. See, when David was king, the prophet Samuel walked up to David and said something over him that was beyond David, but it's connected to David. It's in Second Samuel seven eleven, And God declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you, David when your days are over, when you've died and you rest with your ancestors, I'm going to raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. No problem. That's Solomon. He's the one who's going to build a house for my name. Right. The temple. But notice, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Well, Solomon died. So something way larger is taking place, and what Matthew is saying is, the one who has come named Jesus, he's the fulfillment of that, because his kingdom lasts forever. So Jesus isn't just Messiah, not just Son of David, isn't just sort of Genesis. There's more going on. Then he throws out another thing. He says, oh, Jesus is the son of Abraham. Why does that matter? Well, Abraham is the father of the Jewish nation. He's the father of the Jews. And never forget that when God called Abraham from paganism to true faith, he made an agreement with him and a covenant with him. Not only would God establish Israel as God's people, but he actually promised that that family and that family tree would end up blessing every family tree on earth. All people from all nations somehow would be blessed through the genealogy of Abraham. And this is what God says in Genesis 12, verse three, I will bless those who bless bless you curse those who curse you all the people on the earth will be blessed through you all the way back when God met Abraham what did God promise that blessing and salvation would be a Jewish thing only no it would start in the Jewish community but would spread over the whole world God's heart for all people and how did that take place well Matthew's saying the fulfillment of that is happening through this guy this 33 year old who's been walking around his name is Jesus So let's read it again. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And Abraham, we get going now, is the father of Isaac. And Isaac is the father of Jacob. And Jacob is the father of Judah and his brothers. Now let's camp there for a minute. Jacob and the father of Judah. Jacob's name later gets changed to Israel. And he has 12 sons. And Judah is one of them. It gets even more Jewish here. And those 12 sons become the 12 tribes of Israel. And so the Christmas story is fundamentally a Jewish story rooted all in Jewish religious tradition right here. But you gotta ask yourself the question, why does Matthew choose Judah when he had 12 names to choose from? Why does he highlight that group and that tribe and that guy and not the rest? Because of one other thing. In the Old Testament, there were not one, not two, not 20, not 100. There were 300 prophecies that the Messiah had to fill to actually be the person. If you didn't actually do all 300 things, you're a fake, you're a fraud, you're not the person. Now, this is critical that we sort of catch this. Mathematically speaking, the odds of one person fulfilling 300 very specific prophecies is staggering. (laughs) Mathematicians put it this way. One person fulfilling eight prophecies is one in 100 with 17 zeros behind it. So you start seeing the picture. This is like an impossible task. And Judah is one of those prophecies. Here was what the prophet Micah said in the Old Testament. Micah two, but you Bethlehem, though you're small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be a ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old and from ancient times. The Messiah had to be from the clan of Judah and had to be from the hamlet of Bethlehem. If you weren't from Judah's tribe and you didn't come from Bethlehem, you're not the person. And, and Matthew's going, yep, both these things are true. So you've got Abraham, you've got Isaac, you've got Jacob, you've got the 12 sons, and Jesus comes from this line. Now, remember the original audience. They're all Jewish, and it doesn't get more Jewish than this. Do you remember when Moses encountered God personally for the first real time at the burning bush? And he takes his sandals and says, how does God identify himself to Moses? I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. So at this moment, this is like, okay, wow, this is serious. The whole thing's going on. And then Matthew, after he throws that all on the table, throws a curveball to get not only his original audience's attention, but our attention to show us the greater moment to give hope and to give us the truth that maybe people like him and maybe people like us could actually not just know there is a God out there, but could meet that God and have a relationship with him. Because in the next moment, he throws out scandal after scandal The Ancestry.ca goes really bad right now. Judah is the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram. Salmon the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed the father of Jesse. Jesse the father of King David. David the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Okay, now we need to stop here for a moment and walk this through. Now, we don't know this again because we live today. 2,000 years ago, in Orthodox Jewish communities, every godly man would wake up in the morning and pray this prayer. And I'm going to just say it. I'm not going to pray it. I'm going to say it. Blessed are you, O God, King of the universe, who has not made me a non-Jew, a slave, and a woman. Every Orthodox man would wake up every morning and say, "Oh, thank you, God, that I'm in the right ethnicity, in the right faith, and I'm not born a woman, a slave, or one of those non-Jews, amen. And into that, Matthew, in the genealogy of the Messiah, says this stuff. He includes not one, not two, not three, but four women. And he does it very intentionally. First, you've got Tamar. Now we're starting to see the dark side of the story. Tamar's not even Jewish, by the way. She's a Canaanite. She's part of the enemy of the Jewish people. But more, if you've read her story, her story is brutal. I I was preparing this week and came across a very famous sermon by a Dominican priest. And he summarized our journey to Advent this way so far. He said the faith of Abraham meant that Isaac very nearly had his throat cut by his father at an early age. Isaac survived that to become the father of Jacob. Jacob is an unscrupulous but entertaining character who won his position in the line that leads to Jesus by lying and cheating his blind old father. And then he himself was cheated, however, when he slept with the wrong girl by mistake, and that's where Judah comes from. And then Judah grew up and he slept again by mistake with his own daughter in law, Tamar, and she. She actually cheated Judah by disguising herself and dressing up as a temple prostitute. Uh, When Judah heard his daughter-in-law had prostituted herself and become pregnant, he was so enraged he ordered that Tamar would be burnt alive. But then he became very upset when he discovered he himself had been the client and slept with his daughter-in-law and their child as Perez. So Merry Christmas, everyone. Merry Christmas. Really? And you say the Bible is boring? Read the Word of God. It's a Jerry Springer show. (laughs) And then you've got Rahab who, by the way, isn't Jewish either. She's a Canaanite, and many of you know her story. It's an amazing story found in Joshua. They're about to invade the promised land, Joshua 2, And then Joshua, son of Nun, secretly sent two spies from Shittim, go look over the land, especially Jericho, and they went and entered the house of a prostitute, a sex trade worker named Rahab, and they stayed there. So you've got spies, invasion, God, promised land, and a sex trade worker. It's like a Bond movie. Okay, so it gets worse, because Rahab's name, I'm not saying this for effect, but Rahab's name literally means "why." open and prideful. The woman either is a sex trade worker in the house, or she's the madam of the house. Now the soldiers are hid there because other soldiers are trying to kill them, and this conversation between Rahab and these soldiers is quite profound. It says in Joshua 1, 9, I know, this is Rahab speaking, I know that the Lord God has given you our land, And a great fear of you has fallen on us. So all that live in this country are melting in fear because of you. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family because I've shown kindness to you. Give me a sure sign that you will spare the life of my father, my mother, my brothers, my sisters, and all who belong to them, that you'll save us from this death. Our lives for your lives, the men assured her. So it says that she lets them down and they escape. And then it says at the end of the passage in verse 25, Joshua spared the life of Rahab the prostitute with her whole family and all who belonged to her. And she lives among the Israelites to this day. Now here's what we got to again recover. She's the great, 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 great times, whatever grandmother of Jesus, the savior of the world. And then keep reading Boaz is the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse, Jesse, the father of King David, David, the father of Solomon, whose, whose wife, uh, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Now all four women mentioned aren't Jewish. Two are Canaanites, one's a Moabite, one's the wife of a Hittite. So Ruth isn't Jewish, nor probably was Bathsheba. And not only that, then you have this story, of course, that Solomon is produced because David has an affair with Bathsheba. Whether it was mutual consent or forced, we do not know. It's just bad. And out of that comes Solomon. The same Roman Catholic priest said this, the first section of the genealogy concentrates on sex. From David onward, it now moves to violence. David falls in love with a girl he chances to see bathing naked. One evening, he arranged her husband to be murdered, sleeps with her, and becomes the father of Solomon, the next in the line of this in the succession towards Jesus our Savior. The whole story of David, the ruthless and highly successful bandit, who in the power of God's Spirit got control of a whole confederacy of tribes, is full of intrigue and murder. Now, if you keep reading through the genealogy, it gets worse. From verse 8 to verse 11, we start going through all the kings that rule after Solomon. Now Solomon's rule ended with civil war. He dies, and the southern kingdom becomes Judah, the northern kingdom becomes Israel, and 19 kings rule in Israel, and 19 kings and one queen rule in Judah. And here's the story. Of the 19 kings in Israel, God says every single one of them was evil did nothing good. In Judah, 12 of them were bad, eight of them were good, and and so they're all involved in mass murder, political assassination, worshiping false gods. It gets so bad that some of these kings start taking their children, burning them alive to demons and false idols. God has enough, and he says, I'm gonna judge you, and that leads us to the exile we all just talked about in the series in Daniel, where they're actually wiped out and taken to Babylon. But just before that takes place, remember what we learned? Jeremiah the prophet said that 70 years would pass, and then there would be a return back for God's people. And you see that right in Matthew 1.12. After the exile to Babylon, Jehoiakim, the father of Shetel, Shetel becomes the father of Zerubbabel. Under the leadership of Nehemiah and Ezra, they start rebuilding the temple, and God's people start coming back, and there's great joy, and then they stutter, and then they stop, and they get defeated in their hearts. And God keeps sending these prophets to keep going. And then Haggai the prophet speaks to one person mentioned here, Zerubbabel. And here's what Haggai says to Zerubbabel. He says, tell Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, this is in Haggai 2, that I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth. This is God speaking. I'm going to overturn royal thrones and shatter powers and foreign kingdoms. I will overthrow chariots and drivers and horses, and their riders will fall, each by the sword of their own brother." On that day, declares the Lord Almighty, the God of angel armies, I will take you, my servant Zerubbabel, son of Sheetal, declares the Lord, and I will make you like a signet ring. I have chosen you, declares the Lord Almighty. So God comes to Zerubbabel, who's trying to rebuild this nation, and says, don't be afraid. I've made you the leader. I'm gonna provide for you. I've even given you my royal assent. You're like my signet ring. When you say something, you're speaking for me. And yet, if you read this amazing prophecy from Haggai, and you read Zerubbabel's life, none of it happens. Not like this. So did he get it wrong? I mean, governor was uh, honorary at best, no throne, no crown, no empire, nothing like Solomon or David. He just barely hangs on as a nothing leader. But see, the prophecy from Haggai was to Zerubbabel, yes, but actually was to his line Because the one that will come from Zerubbabel will be the ultimate signet ring, the ultimate one who has full authority. And when he shows up, all the nations will actually go into chaos. Everything will be changed. He will change the world. And where does Zerubbabel's name come up in the New Testament? In Matthew, when he's declaring that Jesus is who he claimed to be. Well, it keeps going. Another 10 names, which I won't pronounce. Generation, 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 slowly leading us to Jesus. And finally, we arrive in verse 16. And it reads like this, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, Mary, the mother of Jesus, who's called the Messiah. Now, I've read this many times before. Maybe you have too. But when we read it, especially in English, we miss something so profound, so powerful, and so needed. See as we read it it says 40 times over that someone produced someone else so Abraham produced Isaac etc if you used to, if you grew up ever reading the King James the word begat was always using father begat Isaac Isaac begat Jacob there's a lot of begatting going on which means someone slept with someone else and they produced a baby and it's all active but when you get to verse 16 everything changes there's no begatting there's no anything it's not active. Actually, in the original language, it takes a passive form. And why is this here? Because of what actually happened with Mary. See, it says this in Matthew 18. This is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. His mother, Mary, was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, before they begatted, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Luke 1.35, the angel said to Mary, the Holy Spirit will be upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you, so the Holy One born will be called the Son of God. See, Mary was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. And don't misread this. It's not like God mated with this young teenage girl. That's pagan. God resided in her. This is what we call the virgin conception and the virgin birth. And by the way, this is a non-negotiable part of the Christian faith. If you don't believe in the virgin birth, you're not a Christian. This is critical to our faith. We confess this uh, in the Apostles Creed. Jesus was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. The heart of the Christmas story and the beginning of our movement is here. God came for us when we could not get to him, and Jesus is without sin, but he is still fully human. Not appearing human, not adopted. He's fully human and fully God. And the virgin conception and the virgin birth allows for Jesus to be without sin and yet still be one of us. And Matthew ends by saying, there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. Now, as you go through this, the question we all need to ask is this, why was that even helpful? Well, number one, we need to recover and remember this. God, who is good, does anyone agree that God is good? God who's good, and God who loves us, is in control. We saw this through the whole book of Daniel. We need to continue to remind ourselves that God is sovereign, God is providential, and God worked through this incredibly bizarre family history. What? To bring us Jesus. Through all the ups and all the downs and all the darkness and all the light, God never stopped being God and God never will be stopped. And God worked through Jesus' very dysfunctional extended family so the world could be brought back home. And when Jesus came, what did he come to do? He came to cover all the stuff in his family tree that was wrong and cover all the bad stuff in our own lives, and our own family tree. And God was beginning to announce the world that you as a person and your family history can actually be redeemed, forgiven, changed, and you can be weaved right into God's own family tree. Also, when you read this, it brings us hope. If Jesus's family tree was that messed up, then it's going to be okay for us too. I mean, think about it. Miraculous, moral, sinful, broken families, broken hearts, long-term bitterness, murder, sexual assault, sexual sin, good leaders, bad leaders, liars, cheaters, heroes and scoundrels, Jews, non-Jews, women, men, faithful, unfaithful, priests, prophet, and prostitutes make up the family tree of Jesus, the Messiah, the Savior, and the world. See, here's the beautiful thing about Christianity. God doesn't just say everything is ruined. God shines in the ruins and then shows up in the ruins and then rebuilds the ruins, and he produces new families. Family trees out of them to say to, the, say to the world that new things can come. When you understand the Christmas story and the profundity of what we believe, then when Paul comes along, his words even have more power. 2 Corinthians 5.21, and if you're a seeker here today or a skeptic or not a Christian, this is what we believe. God made Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God one of the most earthquake-like statements that rocked the Roman world that formed the Christian movement that has continued to ripple and challenge all principalities and powers spiritually and logistically is this it's in Galatians 328 there is neither Jew or non-Jew slave or free there is neither male or free, female for we are all one in Jesus Christ can we say amen to that this morning we're all we're all one in in Jesus Christ that that is amazing but that couldn't be preached without the genealogy. And that could not be true without the work of Jesus. As long as you come to God through Jesus alone, you will be brought into a new profound family tree that actually crosses racial barriers and gender barriers and history barriers and unites us around one who makes us all clean. Don't forget who Matthew is. Matthew was a cheater, a liar, and a collaborator. Let me bring this home. Matthew was like someone in France working for the Nazis. This is bad news. He's a betrayer of his family, a betrayer of his people, a betrayer of his faith. And yet, what does Jesus say? You, I've chosen you. You walk with me. I'm going to change your world. He used Rahab, for example, to prepare the world. And he used Matthew to tell the world. And if he can use Rahab and Matthew, he can use any of us. Any of us. It's amazing, years later, Jesus' half-brother, who did not believe in Jesus, who encountered him after the resurrection, who wrote the Gospel of James, uses Rahab as an example of profound faith. James 2.25, in the same way, was not Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them in a different direction? As the body is without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. Never forget this too doesn't matter how good or moral uh, moral you are, religious or not, the Bible says that every person on earth really at the end of the day is Rahab and is Levi. The power of the Christmas story is this. It hides nothing. It calls everything out and then gives us hope all at once. Every single one of us have betrayed others and God. Every one of us have collaborated with the evil one and our own desires. We've all worshiped other gods, sex, money, power, fame, or literally other gods or ideas. The Bible says we're all under the wrath of God because we walked away. We don't know God. We're not part of God's people. We're open and wide to ungodliness. Our lives reflect pride. Many of us, especially in the West, think we can run our life without God, or we make a God that suits us. We're all spiritually prostitutes, many of us, giving our lives or running away from the one that loves us. And yet, here's the amazing thing the Christmas story reminds us of. God loved Rahab, God loved Levi, and God loves you. He knew what was going on in their lives and our lives, and he was able to do something about it. As I preached in an early series, Jesus is the better Joshua. If he set Rahab free, Jesus sets us eternally free. And by the way, if you're here today and you have never, ever accepted Jesus as Savior, leader, and Lord, and welcome his reign and rule and his love, here's what Paul says you need to do. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, you believe in your heart that god the father raised him from the dead you will be saved everyone who calls on the name of the lord will be saved and that is so important that we hear that no matter if you're one of the pagan kings who does all the bad things or you're a really nice moral person no matter who you are anyone who calls on the name of the lord will be saved as we said in the video not so long ago in a barn in bethlehem god became flesh and blood an infant son Jesus Christ, God with us, was born into a family, woven into the fabric of humanity. His family tree is full of colorful characters, just like our own family trees, some beautiful, some broken, yet all these branches were used to bring us to the moment when heaven touched earth and began to stitch us into the story. Each generation this is what we're doing right now each generation declares to the next generation the wonders of God at Christmas each one of us can be woven into God's family tree and know this Jesus son of man and son of God and if you've never accepted him I'm gonna give you a chance to do that in a minute but before I do that I would like to take now the last one or two minutes and I'd like to speak to every person within the sound of my voice who is a follower of Jesus you're here at church today you're listening online and you are in You believe Jesus is the son of David, the son of God, the son of of Abraham? uh, Yes. And here's what I need to say to you. It's Christmas time. You're like, yeah, thanks. No, no. No. In the next two weeks, life is gonna be really busy. You can say amen to that. Shopping and family stuff and turkey and trees, all of it. And, And this, I just, I need to say this. God, gave up everything to come back for us. And we all know this, but like when you read Jesus's story, the family tree, you're like, you realize how much God did to get back to us through so much dysfunction and pain and brokenness and family, like he came. The father gave his his son and we celebrate this and we sing and we give in this church. Yes, yes, yes. But here's what I want to say. In the next two weeks, every single person around you needs Jesus. And I like, I know you know that, and I know I know that, but I, I feel like I need to preach this moment. The crazy uncle in your family who really bothers you needs Jesus. The person in your family you don't want to talk to anymore because they've hurt you so they need Jesus. Your neighbor needs Jesus. Every person on your street and in your business or your background who's from another faith needs Jesus. Our families are full of Levi's and Rahab's and good people and bad people. And I know we talk about this every time, and, but look, in the next two weeks, people are weirdly open to talking about Jesus and they're weirdly open even to coming to church, even in a post-Christian, de-Christian moment. Christmas Eve or the 23rd still is this moment. And here's what I wanna to say to you, and I'm like, I'm not gonna, I'm just begging you. Take the time. God gave up Jesus so we could have salvation. Don't take Christmas for granted as a Christian. Every person around you, God wants to weave them into his family tree. So literally, walk across the street and say to someone, come to Christmas Eve with me. Because you know if they come, they're going to hear the good news. Matthew wrote this down so we could be convinced. He took the time Listen, I know life is busy. I know no one likes going on Facebook through their 1.2 million friends and personally going click, click, click. Do it. Their life depends on it. If I will not be offended. Take out your phone right now, literally, and text someone and say, would you come? This is why I'm begging you. Because in the next two weeks, there is going to be a moment and an opportunity where thousands of people might actually be open to stepping through doors in a church context and hearing the good news of Jesus. And you have no clue what the sovereign God of heaven and earth is going to do in that moment. You have no clue if God's going to call them on that Christmas Eve or on the 23rd or later after they hear the story and weave them in and they become your brother and sister. Do not let fear stop you in the next, Next two weeks from inviting people to hear the good news about Jesus. Do not let pride stop you. And some of you are going, John, I've invited someone for 14, 16, 18 years. They have never come. Well, God's still in control. Go back and knock again. Knock again. Because God sent his son into this world to redeem the world and build a new family tree. And we've got the good news. And we're only one church of many. Take the time and the busyness and the turkey and the gifts and the trees. I like trees. You know I like trees. Irrelevant. This is what matters in the end. Be intentional. Be prayerful. Be courageous and say to people, will you come? You say, oh no, my friend's a Sikh. Irrelevant. Bring them. No, my friend's a Muslim. They think he's just a pro No, invite them anyway. My friend's an atheist. He doesn't believe it irrelevant, bring them. If they're willing to come, why? Because it's not your job to change their heart. It's God's job to change their heart. And if he could change Rahab's heart and change Levi's heart, he can change anyone's heart. Don't miss the opportunity in the next two weeks. Could you agree with me on that? It's so important that we do this together. Together. So let's just end by praying. Number one, thank you, Lord. Thank you. Thank you for the genealogy of Jesus. Thank you that all the weirdness and the brokenness and the dysfunction, you came anyway. Thank you. Thank you that when Jesus died and rose again, all the wickedness in his family and our family was covered and it's conquered. Thank you. Thank you, Lord, that you keep talking to us and you're with us and you love us. And we just take a moment. We're gonna pray this right now. Lord, would you not only, Holy Spirit, give this church boldness, Would you start opening doors that have been closed for years? And would we be shocked who says yes? And would you fill this site and the other sites, and not just our church. We pray this for all the churches in our region. Literally, may churches be standing only in the next 14 days. As the good news is preached, sung, chanted, read, preached, and declared. And here's our ask, Father and Son, send the Holy Spirit and open people's eyes to the good news of Jesus Christ, that there's hope, that there's forgiveness, that there's resurrection, and there's second chances. Come, Holy Spirit, do the impossible in 2018 like you did 2,000 years ago and you did even before that. We are totally open. Lead us and guide us, we ask. And we all said this together in the name of Jesus, amen. We thought it would be great for us as a community, to start our Christmas time with communion. So we could, as we enter in, see the full circle of what God was up to. Jesus, 33 years later, after he was born, sat with his closest friends, including Matthew. And he took a piece of bread and he broke it and said, this is my body. It's about to be broken, torn apart for you. He took one of the great Passover cups that was done in Jewish community and said, this is now my blood representing my shed blood. There's gonna be a new agreement, a forgiveness. The Bible is clear that any person who is called on the name of the Lord, who is a follower of Jesus the Messiah, Jesus the Son of David, who declares him Savior and Lord is welcome to take this. It's the symbol of his death, his resurrection. As I say all the time at communion, we take communion knowing one day we'll never take it again because one day Jesus is coming back and we're gonna eat face to face with him and it's gonna be way better than this. This is a guaranteed place of encounter though. Jesus isn't in the elements, but he's at these tables. And so today, if you're a Christian, you're welcome to come forward and say, thank you, Jesus, for your birth, your life, your death, and your resurrection. The Bible says if you're not a Christian yet, please don't take it. You've not encountered the one it represents you always can meet him then. The Bible also says this is a time to ask forgiveness for your sins. To take a moment and say, Lord, where have I sinned? The Bible also says if you're not reconciled with someone, you should try to reconcile before you do this. And if you can't, you just wait, you try and then come back. And if you are a Christian and you do know the love of God, but you refuse to give up a part of your life to God at this moment, it says don't take it until you're willing to lay all things down. Because Paul says you'll drink judgment on yourself, even if you're a Christian. But as you come today, as we take this, this is going to come forward communion today. As you come, and you can stand now. As you come forward, I just want to say this to you. Thank Jesus for his coming, not just his death and resurrection. Thank him for his dysfunctional family tree. And thank him that he came to set you free and save you. So when you're ready, you can come at any time and participate. God bless you this season. Thanks for joining us. To connect to the ministries of C4, visit c4church.com.